Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come humbly and eagerly for our daily bread. And so we pray, God, that you would feed us, that you would nourish our souls, nourish our spirits, nourish our minds, that we would set our minds on you, our hearts on you. Give us clarity as we study this, not so much that we may understand it, but so that we may do what is required of us, do what pleases you for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18 today. Genesis chapter 18, if you got your Bible from out in the foyer, it is page 12 that we're on. Wow, page 12. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 1 to 8 today uh, as we continue studying the life of Abraham. This past week, the board of directors for our denomination sent me an email announcing a proposed change to the articles of incorporation for our denomination. Um, And and I've I've got it here. Um, Let me read to you the first sentence, what it used to be, and then I'll read to you what it is and and the rest of of the, the article of incorporation. The old one says this, we believe in the personal bodily and premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the proposed change is this, we believe in the personal bodily and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the rest of it says this, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. And I can wholeheartedly say that I am on board with that. That, that sounds good. The board of directors um, voted unanimously to approve this change, and I think it's a, a pretty good change. After all, it's not that I'm opposed to premillennial eschatology or anything like that, but if that's in there, what that does is it, it would exclude uh, some of the greatest Christian philosophers and greatest thinkers in history. It would exclude St. Augustine. It would exclude Thomas Aquinas. It would exclude John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon. And we really don't want to make something that is so historically unrecognized or historically kind of rare uh, one of the distinctives of the denomination. So I actually think this is a, a pretty good move. In fact, as you look around today, I am fully aware of the fact, and I'm comfortable with the fact, that some of us are premillennial in our eschatology, in our view of the end times. Some of us are amillennial in our view of the end times. And some of us just say, you know what, we'll figure it out when it happens. But when what happens? When the important part of this article of incorporation becomes a reality. When Christ returns. That much is not negotiable. That much is crucial. It's vitally important. That much every Christian throughout history has affirmed. We will either stand before him one day, either when our time expires, when our days are up, or when he returns. The wise man will live as if Christ is returning in five minutes, and the foolish live as if he is never coming back. But we will stand before him, either when our days expire or when he returns. And that's a truth that I was reminded of this past week as we brought Christina to the emergency room on Tuesday night. There was a point on Wednesday, I don't think I've told many of you about this, there was a point on Wednesday afternoon, she's in the ER still, and uh, her heart spiked up to 180 beats per minute which was pretty scary, and it wasn't going down. It wasn't going back down, and it didn't stop there either. It went up to 185. At 190, a doctor came in and said, well, this isn't an emergency. This, um, you know, a marathon runner can sustain this type of stuff for, you know, this type of heart rate for quite a while, and, you know, it's not going to kill you, but we do need to bring it down, Um, and so we need to do this procedure, which essentially restarts your heart. 
And so when her heart rate got up to 195, they came in, they put the defibrillator pads on her and everything just in case her heart didn't restart itself. And uh, they did this procedure, which essentially restarted her heart. And I can honestly say that this had to be the most terrifying experience I've ever been through in my life as her heart rate went from almost 200 down to 80, just like that. And I was wondering, is it done? And it did bounce back. Praise the Lord for that. But this was a terrifying experience. But it was a good reminder of this truth. That one day, and we don't know when it is, we will stand before the Lord. Either when our days expire or when He returns. And we don't know when that is. Nobody knows when it is. And in fact, you have, you've never had less time to prepare to stand before Him than you do right now. We must be ready. So Christina, as, as they're doing this procedure on her, they, she, she's, she's just praying. And I'm standing off in a corner just letting the doctors do their thing and, and praying. One of the things that Jimmy Carter did when he was president of the United States to make himself seem less like a politician and more like a, a champion of the people was to visit them in their homes. And these are people who were more or less just sort of randomly selected and got a phone call. Uh, guess what? The President of the United States is going to come and visit you in your home. And I can't imagine what it would be like to get a call saying that the President of the United States was going to come and visit me in my house. I think I would be inclined to think that it was just a prank call and I'd be wondering who this really is. But how much panic? If, if you knew that this was true, if you knew the President of the United States was going to come and visit you in your home, how much panic would come over you once you knew that it wasn't a hoax or some kind of game? What would you do to prepare your house? Because you know that no politician is going to come and do this without a whole bunch of cameras present to document the whole experience. So how would you respond to this kind of opportunity? What would you change? You know, maybe you'd buy a new outfit, uh, maybe you'd buy a new set of furniture, maybe you'd hire landscapers and interior designers to come and, and fancy it all up. How would you respond to knowing that the President of the United States was coming to visit you personally? Now ask the same question, but take the President out of the equation and insert the Lord Jesus Christ. What would be your response if you got notice that he and a couple of his angels planned on paying you a visit? Would it mean changing anything at all? Would you need to delete your computer browsing history? What would he think about the TV shows you watch? What would he think about the way you decorate your house? What would he think about the movies and music that you pour into your mind? And what would it mean to you personally for life to go back to normal after they leave? Today we're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis as we look at chapter 18 in verses 1 to 8. And in this short passage, Abraham will encounter the Lord much in the same way that we will someday, unexpectedly, at a time that we don't know with no advance notice of the day, the time, or the hour. And the theme that we're going to see in this chapter is that service unto the Lord flows from intimate fellowship and friendship with Him. Service unto the Lord flows from intimate fellowship and friendship with Him. Now in the previous chapter, just to, to put it in a nutshell for us, in the previous chapter, God confirmed the covenant with Abraham, establishing the, the covenant uh, and, and the sacrament of the covenant, circumcision, um, which every male in Abraham's household was supposed to do. And he went home and he did it that very day. He did it immediately. And so it seems that the encounter that we're going to read about in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8 here, uh, comes very, very shortly after what we read in chapter 17. So let's look at chapter 18. We'll just start with verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. 
So the, the, the scene is set. It's, it's the hottest time of the day, and we know the temperatures in this region, temperatures in this area get so hot sometimes in the middle of the day that nobody can be out working, out laboring under the heat of the sun. And so Abraham is just resting in the shade by the door of his tent, and that's when the Lord suddenly shows up. It's explicit. Chapter 18, verse 1 tells us who shows up. It is the Lord who shows up. And this is just another instance of Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. There is no such thing as reincarnation, but this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Christ before he was born in Bethlehem. We know that Paul, when he was describing God to Timothy, he wrote that God alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, obviously, Paul isn't talking about Jesus there because he knew very well and he wrote about the fact that people did see Jesus. In fact, Paul himself personally saw the risen Christ. So Paul wasn't talking about Jesus when he was saying that. He was talking about the Father of whom Moses was told, man cannot see him and live. So if God appeared to somebody, if God appeared and approached somebody in the Old Testament, it only makes sense that it would be Jesus prior to his own birth in Bethlehem. Again, that's not reincarnation. This is pre-incarnation. And so here we see that Jesus, in the flesh, appears to Abraham before Sarah's pregnant because she's going to find that out later in this chapter, and he's going to say that in a year it's going to happen. So this is within three months of what we read in the previous chapter. Now there are three times in Scripture that Abraham is referred to as a friend of God. And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 8, it's God himself who refers to Abraham as his friend. And so at 99 years of age, which is how old we found out he was back in chapter 17. At 99 years of age, Abraham is a friend of God. And this is the chapter to which all the other references to Abraham being a friend of God point us back to. The question that we have to ask, or should be asking maybe at this point, is did Abraham realize who this was? Did Abraham realize that this was the Lord himself who appeared before him? And there's a lot of discussion about this, and there are a lot of divergent ideas about it, but it seems pretty obvious to me that Abraham would have recognized the incarnate Christ immediately. After all, this isn't the first time that the Lord has appeared to Abraham. So unless we take the idea that every time he appears, he takes on some different form or different, uh, you know, he, he looks differently each time he appears, uh, it, it seems pretty clear that he would have recognized the Lord standing before him. And I find it just too speculative to assume that, you know, uh, that the Lord looked different every single time he appeared to Abraham. That doesn't make uh, a whole lot of sense, and there's no indication of that. But Many commentators do argue that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, which speaks of people unknowingly entertaining angels, uh, people will argue that that refers back to this chapter, this instance in which the Lord and two angels show up. Uh, but personally, I'm inclined to believe that Abraham did recognize the Lord immediately as the Lord. It seems to me that Abraham knew that these weren't just any guests and besides, Abraham isn't just entertaining angels. He's entertaining the Lord himself in the flesh, who just happens to have two angels accompanying him. Everyone thinks that they would like to be friends with God. Until you realize that he is entirely unlike us. He's not going to encourage or affirm your sin. If anything, he's going to rebuke you. He might even call you Satan if you don't watch what you say to him. So really, is that the kind of friend that you want? He's got a holy wrath against sin. He knows your thoughts. He knows your thoughts before you do. He knows the desires of your heart before you do. Better than you do. Is that the kind of friend you want to have? On this occasion, the reason that he's even there is because he and his angels are about to go over to judge and destroy 
the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll come to soon, but not quite yet. But before he goes there, he stops and he pays Abraham a visit. Now, Abraham's calling, his purpose that God has given him is to be a blessing to all the nations, all the families of the earth. But before that, before he can be a blessing to others, he is a blessing unto God. Every single one of us needs to understand that the same concept holds true for us as well. Do you want to love others? Do you want to serve others? Those are great aspirations and the aspirations that we should all have. But our love and our service must be first and foremost unto the Lord. Love God, love people, serve God by serving people. There's an order to that. To serve people in a way that glorifies God, you must have love and a desire to serve the Lord first and foremost. God has not just called us to be moral people. He's not just called us to be people who are really nice to our neighbors and and things like that. He's not just asking us to be good enough because God doesn't grade on a curve. See, it's possible for somebody to be a, a good neighbor, practically speaking. It's possible for somebody to be very moral, very good, and, and to desire to help others. But if your desire to love and serve others doesn't flow out of a desire to love and serve the Lord first and foremost, then your love and your service unto others is garbage as far as God's concerned. Our best acts, as far as God is concerned. Our best acts are like handing Him a filthy diaper. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not hand God a filthy diaper. But that's what it is. If our motivation is something other than a love for God and a desire to serve God. Otherwise, it's just behavioral modification or social adaptation. You know, this is what society or this is what your parents expect and so this is what you do. But God wants you to be holy. He wants you as His child, if you have placed saving faith in Christ, He wants you to be holy. Yes, judicially you are holy. You are, you, you've had the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. But He wants you to be practical with your holiness as well. In other words, he wants it to be a part of your life that is developing constantly. That's what, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about growth in Christ's likeness, which is growth in holiness. Because you cannot be holy. You cannot grow in holiness without growing in the likeness of Christ. Let me say that again. You cannot grow in holiness without growing in the likeness of Christ. You're more likely to find a square that has five sides. Or you're more likely to find a universe in which 2 plus 2 equals 17 than you are to become holy without becoming more like Christ. And one of the ways that God has ordained that we grow in Christ's likeness is by serving and loving and blessing others but that starts with a love for God. It starts with a heart that desires to serve and bless God. Abraham gives us a good example of what that looks like here in our passage. So let's continue with verses 2 to 8. Speaking of Abraham, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sails of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it 
to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham is a friend of God. He's a friend of the Lord. And this is what a friend of God, this is what a friend of the Lord does. Are you a friend of the Lord? Do you want to serve the Lord? Because it starts with your attitude. It starts with a posture of humility toward Him. Abraham immediately assumes a posture of humility. It's like he can't do it fast enough. He jumps up, he runs over, and he bows down. Look at verse 2 with me. It says that upon seeing them, he did what? He bowed before them. He bowed himself to the earth. Now the word that gets translated as bowed here is a Hebrew word that more often than not gets translated as worship. There's an entirely different word that gets translated as bowed, which means like to to bow your knee. So it's an entirely different concept here. The, the, the idea here is much more than the fact that Abraham was you know, just polite and, and bowed down to, to them as was the culture's uh, custom at that time. The idea here is that he was humble and that he was worshiping. By bowing down and worshiping, he's essentially sending the message. It's a picture of him being no better than the dust on the ground. And if this was not the Lord in the flesh, by the way, we can be certain that Abraham would have been scorned. He, he would have been rebuked for taking a posture of worship before the Lord. The fact that the Lord receives this worship tells us that this is God incarnate. God in the flesh standing before Abraham. And Abraham's response of showing outward humility flows from a heart that is humble toward the Lord. The outward action flows from the inward reality. Because our actions reveal what's going on in our heart, don't they? Our actions are an indication of what's going on in the heart. In fact, what we say is also an indication of what's going on in the heart. Jesus said that the abundance of the heart flows out of the mouth, flows from the lips. So wives, if you honor and and love your husband the way that you're supposed to in your heart, you won't have your eyes wandering to other men. And men, husbands, if you love and honor your wives in your hearts the way that Scripture says, instructs us to, your eyes will look away from other women. If your heart is discontent with something, whether you're married or single, if your heart is discontent with something, it's going to show up in your actions one way or another. That's why it's a sin to covet. Because coveting is really discontentment with God. And it's going to lead you down paths of sin in other directions. If your heart is discontent, It'll show up in your actions one way or another. It'll be evident. And so for that reason, Abraham's eagerness to humbly submit to the Lord, to humbly worship the Lord, is an automatic response for him. Why? Because it's in his heart. It's flowing from his heart. Side note, by the way, for you men. Don't think for one second that your wife doesn't notice if your eyes are straying to other women. When Christina and I first got married, somebody told me about a passage in Job, Job chapter 31, verse 1, in which Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And so at that point, when I, when I learned about that, I was, I was very early, this was very early, very young in my Christian walk. I made a vow with my eyes that if there was a movie that had nudity, I would turn it off. If there was a TV show that had a scantily clad female, I would look away. And to, that, to, the, to this day, to this very day, I still hold to that covenant with my eyes. And I know that Christina's noticed. I know that she's told me before that she notices. Men, if you haven't made a practice, if you haven't made a covenant with your eyes to not gaze upon a woman that doesn't belong to you, that would be one challenge that I have for you today. Anyway, the first quality that Abraham shows us for serving the Lord is to have a humble heart before him. God is pleased 
by humble worship. God is not pleased with proud worship. God is pleased with humble worship. And God is pleased by service that is driven, that flows from a heart that is devoted to Him, that desires to serve Him. In an article from the New York Times this past January, the author pointed out that humility means something different than it used to. So we need to understand what it even means to be humble. Because not only does humility not mean what it used to mean, in fact, these days, it kind of means the opposite. Listen to what this guy writes. He says, quote, Lately, it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory, for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, like copped, and thumb upped. Diving at random into the internet and social media finds this new humility everywhere. A soap opera actress on tour is humbled by the outpouring of love from fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and, hum- and holiday spirit. And yet none of these people sound very humbled at all. On the contrary, they all seem exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. And he concludes by saying, when did humility get so vainglorious? End quote. And I think that if you were to actually analyze a lot of the stuff that gets passed off as, as Christian music on the radio or even in churches these days, I think you'll see this very type of worship. It's, it's the opposite of, of humble. A lot of it is just so focused on the self, as if you're singing, great is my faithfulness, instead of how great thy faithfulness is. Or I'll do this, or I'll do that, or, or I love you so much, rather than admitting that you don't love God the way that you should, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, to be humble means that you recognize that you fall short. It means that you recognize that you have absolutely nothing to boast of. You can't sing a song about how great your worship is because you have nothing to boast of in yourself. Nothing to be prideful about. That's what humility is. It's worth noting that humility and humiliation come from the same root because they mean essentially the same thing. It is the opposite of being proud. When you're humiliated, you're not proud. You're, you're kind of embarrassed. Humility is the opposite of being proud. It's the opposite of vanity. God is pleased by humble worship. God is not pleased by prideful worship, by self-exalting worship. And God is pleased by service that is driven by a heart that's humble before Him. That's the first lesson that we gather from this passage about Abraham. But we've also seen a second quality that's worth taking note of. Not only did Abraham worship humbly, but he worshiped quickly. He worshiped immediately. He didn't delay even one second. You get the picture that he's sitting there kind of lounging in the shade, and as soon as he sees who this is, he's stumbling over himself as he tries to get up as fast as he can, and he runs over to them to bow down before them. I mean, Think about this. This guy's 99 years old. Can you imagine a 99-year-old doing this, running around? I mean, who would blame him? If, if he would have just taken a little bit of time Slow down. You, you know, you don't want to get your heart too worked up. You know, you're 99 years old. Slow down. Who would have blamed him if he would have just kind of taken his time getting up? Who would have blamed him if he would have tried to pretend like he was sleeping as they passed by? Who would have blamed him if he would have just called one of his more than 300 servants that he had, which we'll learn about later in this chapter, instead of himself personally getting up and going to serve the Lord himself? A faithful heart is important. As a man of faith, as, as the father of the faith, which Abraham was, he shows us how a faithful heart responds. A faithful heart doesn't delay. doesn't delay serving the Lord. It doesn't delay 
worshiping the Lord just like a faithful heart doesn't delay confessing sin and repenting before the Lord. So verse 2 tells us that when Abraham saw the Lord and these two angels, he got up and he ran. He didn't walk. He, he ran to worship the Lord. And that's not to say, by the way, that the application for this is that you need to drive 90 miles an hour when you're coming to church. If anything, maybe what it means is your worship needs to start before you even get here. That you get your heart right Saturday night. That you start thinking about service and praying about the service on Sunday morning, on Saturday night or or Sunday morning. Now, not only did he run to worship the Lord, but look at verse 6. Not only did he he run to to fall down at his feet, but verse 6 tells us that he went quickly to tell Sarah to bake some bread. Look at verse 7. It says, He ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it how? Quickly. He prepared it quickly. How do you get a 99-year-old man to run around, go sprinting around his camp in the hottest part of the day? All it takes is a humble heart and an eagerness to serve the Lord. But that's not all. He was humble. He was eager. Third quality that we see here. He was generous. He was humble, eager, and generous. In fact, what we see here is that he goes above and beyond when it comes to serving the Lord. He immediately gives the most that he has to give. Bread, a ready calf, water for the Lord's feet to be washed, curds and milk to refresh and strengthen them for their journey. The idea here is that Abraham isn't holding back at all. He's, he's lavishing everything that he has on the Lord. He's being more than generous with the Lord in serving Him. Maybe he understands that it's because everything that he has, just like for us, everything that he has ultimately comes from God. It's ultimately God's. All he is, all Abraham is, is a steward of these things that he's going to use to serve the Lord. Just like for us, all the things that we have, they're ultimately not ours. We're stewards. If you're a husband, you're a steward of your wife. If you're a wife, you're a, husband, you're a, a steward of your husband. Everything that we have belongs to God. And we are just stewards. And it's good if you are a humble steward, by the way. Because being generous is totally contrary, totally opposite man's nature, man's natural condition. We are naturally inclined to look out for number one, first and foremost, right? We think of ourselves, we think of our needs, we think of our wants, we think of of our leisures, our comfort. We, We think of all these things about us before we even naturally start to consider others, if we think of others at all. The reality is that selfishness is humanity's natural disposition. And I understand that people get uptight. People start squirming in their seats a little bit when the pastor starts talking about living generously. But let me just make this much uh, known up front. I'm not just talking about money. I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about being generous with everything. I'm talking about being generous with every resource you have. I'm talking about being generous with your time, which you are also a steward of. But living generously, that's something that should characterize us. There's a principle here that we need to understand when it comes to money. And that is that where your heart is, your money goes to. Jesus put it this way. He said, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Think about it. Let's, let's say, just hypothetically, that you buy a thousand shares of Coca-Cola stock. And what happens to you? What happens to your level of interest in Coca-Cola as soon as you put money in their company? 
all of a sudden your interest in, in Coca-Cola goes up. All of a sudden you're, you're really interested or, or concerned or excited about new products that they're releasing. All of a sudden you know the CEO's name. All of a sudden you know when they're going to be releasing their quarterly earnings. You know when they're doing uh, shareholder meetings. All these things. Suddenly you care a lot about Coca-Cola more than you would if you didn't own stock in their company. Another example, let's say that you sponsor a child in in some impoverished third world country and you hear about a terrible natural disaster, an earthquake or, or a tsunami that happens there. Because you have a personal investment there. In other words, you, you, there's, there's a part of your heart there in a, in a sense. You care a lot more about that natural disaster and the effects of it you, because you care about the person that you've been sponsoring in that country. You want to know that they're okay. The reality is, where your heart is, your money will follow. And it's often true that conversely, where your money goes, your heart follows. There's a story of the German Huns who, when they were forced to convert to Christianity, agreed to be baptized, but the practice was not that the whole man would be baptized, but that the whole man except for the right arm would be baptized. And the, the thought there, according to this legend, or you know, I'm not sure how much is legend, how much is history, but this is, this is at least the legend. The thought there was that if the right arm isn't baptized, the man is saved, but the arm can still be used to kill. It can still be used to wield a sword, to, to strike somebody down. It can still be used to sin if it wasn't baptized. And the reality is, I think, that a lot of Christians approach generosity the same way. They approach their money the same way. It, it, it's easy to come and, and to worship and to give just enough to feel good about yourself. But being generous is hard. That is not humanity's natural inclination. And yet, if there's one thing that speaks louder than words to a me-focused, self-centered world, it's generosity. It is selfless generosity. Jesus talked about giving in a way so that, that one arm, one hand doesn't know that the other hand is giving. And that's what it means to be generous. Not that you would be generous so that you can get acknowledged that you are doing this before the Lord and out of a love for the Lord, first and foremost. And what, what happens is that the more we grow in the likeness of Christ, the more generous we become. Not just with our finances. I'm talking about everything. He set the standard for generosity. Giving us more grace than we could ever earn in a million lifetimes when all we deserved was wrath. He, he gave us blessing when all we've earned for ourselves is the curse. Let me ask you a question. Does somebody have a calculator on your phone? Pull out your phone. I'll give you permission this one time. Pull out your phone and get, get your calculator ready. Or if you're really good at math, you can do this in your head. At what point does somebody become a bad criminal? How long does a person's rap sheet have to be before we would classify them as a really bad criminal? 20 things? If they've got 20 charges against them, is it pretty serious? How about 30? How about 50? How about 100? Let's say somebody's rap sheet is, is, is three pages long, 100 charges against them. Would you agree that that would be a pretty bad criminal? Have you realized how gracious God has been with you? Maybe you haven't fully grasped how deep God's mercy is. How rich it is. Maybe you would agree that you are a sinner who needs a Savior, but you'd say, I'm really not that bad. I'm not as bad as, as so-and-so or this guy over here or that guy over there. 
So I just want to do a simple exercise with your calculators out. And it starts with understanding that all sin is an offense to God. And that even the slightest, even the very smallest sin that anybody could possibly commit earns them an eternal dose of God's wrath. You might think that that sounds unfair, by the way. But that's exactly what the Word of God teaches, and it's not for us to decide what is fair or what is just. That is up to God and God alone. So, with your calculators ready, given the fact that even one sin earns an eternity of God's wrath, how many times do you think you have sinned? Now, at what point does somebody become a really bad sinner? So I want to do this. Okay, let's, let's just be really conservative with our estimation. Let's say that you are awake for 15 hours a day. You sleep for eight hours at night. You, you take a one-hour nap in the daytime. You live this nice life that lets you do that. So, so you're, you're awake for 15 hours a day. Now, the greatest commandment is what? Anybody? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? So that's the greatest commandment. So let's just say hypothetically that you break that commandment twice per hour. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that's fair. So, so 15 hours in a day times two gives you what? Gives you 30. Okay, so we've got 30 sins per day. And that equates to how many sins per week? So times seven, 210. 210 sins per week. Now multiply that by 52 because there are 52 weeks in a year. Oh boy, 10,920 10, sins. 10,920 sins per year if you only sin twice per hour. That means within a 10-year span, you will have sinned 109,200 times. And that is the lowest, most conservative estimate imaginable. Now, can you see the goodness and the richness and the depths of God's mercy in the fact that He would clean your rap sheet? That He would give you a clean slate that He would forgive every sin, that He would give every sin to His own Son who would bear the wrath that God has against those sins on your behalf as your substitute. More than 10,000 sins per year. All forgiven if you have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, if this does not send you running to the cross, begging God for mercy, I don't know what will. If this doesn't cause you to walk humbly before the Lord, I don't know what will. Because let's be honest here. How many times per hour do you really love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. The truth is that none of us have ever done that for one consecutive second. Even the most dedicated, even the most sanctified, even the most mature Christian still has a long way to go in terms of growing in holiness. See, it's not our efforts that are sufficient. We're never going to be good enough on our own efforts apart from God's grace. It's not our efforts that render us acceptable to God. It's the work of Christ that makes even the vilest sinner with the longest rap sheet of sins that you could possibly imagine a vessel of God's grace. A forgiven person while the cleanest, most moral, most outwardly moral, unregenerate sinner stands condemned as an unrepentant, unbelieving vessel of wrath. When the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it, it doesn't, that's not to say that some barely fall short of the glory of God. No, we all fall really, really, really short of God's glory. 
But this demonstrates the goodness of God and the greatness and the riches and the depths of His mercies unto all who repent and believe in Christ Jesus. What can you possibly boast in with a rap sheet like that? You can't boast in how much money you've got. You can't boast in how smart you are. You can't boast in all the things that you possess or all the power that you have or the people that you know. All you can boast of if you realize how rich God's mercy is is the fact that Jesus died for you as your substitute. Not that you deserved it, but that it was freely given to you. When a person believes in Christ, their relationship with God changes from that of a convicted criminal with a mile-long rap sheet to friend. To friend. Abraham was a friend of God. Are you a friend of God? As we close, there, there, was, a, there was a time in Jesus' ministry when he was, he was traveling around preaching and there was a short man named Zacchaeus who wanted to know more about Jesus and so being kind of short, he climbed up a sycamore tree so that he'd be able to, to see Jesus and hear what Jesus had to say. And as Jesus is passing by, Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And what was Zacchaeus' response? Luke chapter 19, verse 6 tells us this. It says, So he hurried down and came down and received him joyfully. Does that sound like Abraham's response? But the story doesn't end there. Luke chapter 19, verse 8, we read, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today's salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. To be a son of Abraham wasn't saying he's a Jew. It's saying he's following in Abraham's footsteps. He's got saving faith. Zacchaeus was humble. Zacchaeus was eager. And Zacchaeus was generous. To be a son of Abraham is to follow the example that Abraham established. That's what it means to be a friend of God. Are you a friend of God? If He came to visit you tonight, what would need to change in your life between now and then? And as you ponder that question, remember that the wise man will live as if Jesus is going to be back in five minutes, while the foolish will live as if He's never going to return. Jesus said this, John chapter 15, verse 14. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And so I ask you again, are you a friend of God? Are you striving to walk in obedience to his commands? Are you eager to serve him, to serve others because you want to serve him? We are called to be both friends and servants of the Lord. And this means walking humbly, humbly before Him. It means being eager to worship Him, eager to serve Him. And it means being generous, being eager to give Him the best that we have to give, being generous not only in a financial sense, but more importantly, being generous with our time, our resources, and our blessings. And it means to walk in obedience to the Lord in what He has commanded. To be a friend of Christ is to be a friend of God. But to reject Christ is to reject God. It's to be an enemy of God. To be a friend of God means having a humble, eager, and generous willingness to obey. To do what pleases God. However inconvenient It may seem. God's grace will sustain us. His grace is more than enough. The good shepherd will not lose even one of his sheep. He has ransomed every last one of them with his blood. He bore their sin. He bore their shame in order that he would call us friends of God. And so we return to the second part of our denomination's third article of faith. 
the coming of Christ, at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer, that's you, to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. May the grace of God prompt us and lead us to do just that for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your mercy. Father, we thank you that we were enemies of yours, that we were rebels in your kingdom who deserved nothing but wrath, but you showed mercy to us. You sent Jesus, your only begotten Son, to bear our sin and shame, to take our sins upon himself, and to in turn impute his perfect righteousness to us. We thank you that both through his death and through his life, we are rendered justified before you by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. Father, teach us to be a people who are growing in holiness in order that Christ, our Redeemer, our blessed Savior, would be glorified in our lives. And teach us, Lord, to boast in nothing but his great mercy. We pray for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.